Hello, everyone, and welcome to Psych and the City. I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher. This is a space where we talk about sex, intimacy, relationships, identity, sex work, mental health, psychology, psychoeducation, trauma, life, and so much, so much more. Uh, And today is no exception. I am really excited for our guest today. Rose Parker is somebody who I've been following their work online for a little bit of time now, and I've learned so much from her page, Psychosis Positivity. And I don't really have a big introduction. I just kind of want to get right into it. Rose Parker is a psychosis advocate and is entering graduate school to become a psychotherapist. She runs the page and podcast Psychosis Positivity and serves on the executive board at the NGO Students with Psychosis. She believes strongly in the power of psychoeducation to improve the lives of people with psychosis. She has aims of becoming a psychotherapist exclusively for psychotic people and to continue psychosis advocacy. So today I'm speaking with Rose. Uh, I'm really excited. Rose, you run the page uh, Psychosis Positivity on Instagram, and it is really, really amazing. So hello, and thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you uh, about my work and to um, reach um, more, more of an audience. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about you know who you are what you do, your work um, as an executive at Students with Psychosis, your schizophrenia podcast, and your psychosis activism work? Um, Well, I I have early onset schizophrenia. I've had schizophrenic symptoms as far as I have memory. Um, It's been a really long journey. My symptoms have grown with me. I, I sort of entered my full schizophrenia at the age of 19 um, during my sophomore year of university when I had this major episode, I call it my psychotic reset, where everything just sort of shifted. It was sort of like a rubber band snapped in my head and my brain sort of became my brain. And after that episode, I became very sick and I had a downward spiral for a couple of years, but then in my recovery, I don't really like the word recovery for schizophrenia because it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. And for most schizophrenics, they have some element of it their entire lives. Mm. So, but there's not really a better word because I still have schizophrenia, but for my recovery, quote unquote, I went about that and I realized there was so much knowledge lacking in the public, in the professional world about psychosis. And I felt very alienated and alone. So I started blogging about my experiences. And over time, I met more people who were involved in this work. I met Cecilia McGow, the executive director of Students of Psychosis. And I started getting involved there. And that's when things really started taking off. And it ended up turning into a career and a scholarly pursuit. And it's been a wild ride. <laughs> and now you're moving on to grad school soon. Yeah, I, I'm go- getting a master's in clinical mental health counseling. And you want to be a therapist or? 
yeah, I, I want to be a therapist exclusively for schizophrenic and psychotic people. I, I, I live in the Washington DC area oh. and um, it's, you know, it's an area with millions of people. And when I was at my sickest, I probably called over a hundred therapists looking for someone to take me mm. after my therapist at the time dropped me. And I couldn't, and it took that many phone calls to find a single therapist that would treat me. So, you know, what psychosis, you're looking at around full, minimum 4% lifetime prevalence and two, 2 million people minimum, maybe that that's a huge need. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think I'll be lack compliance. No, not at all. Did your, did your therapist stop working with you because they, they were unsure how to, they couldn't provide, I mean, adequate help or, or what happened? Yeah. The therapist didn't understand my symptoms mm. and she got scared of liability. So she dropped me. Oh, wow. Wow. When you say that you had early onset schizophrenia, what, what age did you start experiencing symptoms versus maybe the average age that some people start experiencing symptoms? Well, the earliest symptom I showed would have been before the age of one, because I showed abnormal crawling. Uh, before I crawled, I scooched backwards on my butt, kind of crawled backwards um, for a while before I crawled forwards. Um, and that can be a precursor symptom to early onset schizophrenia. Really? Wow. Um, yeah. But um, the first memory I have of psychosis is about the age of three. Um, I was three, three years old, I think, or, or just turned four. And I was at my daycare and there are these little plastic counting bears for one of the like learning activities. And I heard a voice coming out of nowhere telling me to go steal the plastic bears and put them in my cubby. And I didn't know what the voice was. I didn't want to do it, but I felt like the voice was controlling my actions. And I felt like I was being controlled by an outside force. Mm. So I took the bears and I stole them. And then later, my, a couple of days later, my dad came into my room and I was playing with the counting bears. And he's like, Rose, where did you get those? And I was like, oh, oh they, they came for Barbie. And I don't think he believed me, but I think he decided not to make a fuss over it. But I didn't understand why I'd do it. I didn't understand what the voices were. The voices would be continue to be a problem in my early years. And I, I, I did try asking the adults what they were, but I was told that they were normal stream of consciousness. And I didn't understand how this could be stream of consciousness because you know they're exterior. But I learned to stop responding to the voice to stop doing what the voices said at the age of five um because I had I had violent voices during one episode in the middle of the night and I told them no I'm not going to do what you told me to do mm. um I, I I you're just you're just a voice I don't know who you are I don't know what you are but I don't have to do what you do I don't think anything will happen to me if I don't if I don't listen to you and I said no and nothing happened to me so that's what I did the rest of my life did you, from an early age, did you feel that something was atypical about your experience? Is that why you did seek out advice from the adults in your life? Did you, or, or were you unsure at that point if there was something? I, I, I knew there was something different about my experiences. 
because you know I, I, I see strange colors and lights floating around mm. all, everywhere and I try asking people do you see the lights do you see the colors what what are these things when you look at the sky and people always have explanations what are what are the bright lights when the when the room goes dark do you see the shadows move too you know what's the giant bug that sort of thing did you see the giant bug and it just eventually it seemed like there were these strange things in life everywhere and I, there were all sorts of bizarre things but you just weren't supposed to talk about them right and I didn't understand it why am I the only person who's distressed by all this so I kind of internalized a sense of brokenness it wasn't until I was 14 and I was staying at uh, someone else's house. And I, 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 my room had a staircase down into a, a, a grand library. And I would go down at like four in the morning to do my homework as was, was ninth grade. And I would see these birds pop, fly in and out of the wall and go to the other wall and explode into a puff of feathers. And there were giant spiders that would crawl around. And if one got near to my hand, I could control it with my hand. And there was a plague doctor figure that stood in the archway to the library and looked at me menacingly. And the, the library had a wall of glass that looked over um, a forest garden. And um, planes would often fly by leaving Ronald Reagan National Airport. And I could see the planes, but when the planes were, but the lights of the planes would detach from the planes and start dancing around and form these shapes and things in the air and dance through the trees. Hmm. And I was just sitting there staring at all this and like, this can't be happening. So you knew this that it real. was maybe not real. Yeah, that's when I figured out I had hallucinations. I was like, none of this is real. This can't be real. Something's wrong here. Because it felt too bizarre to be real? Yes. It, it was like walking into some messed up wonderland as a foster care. Oh, okay. And, and so you, so you started to know that something that you were having hallucinations. Yeah. So how did you start to learn more? Or you said that at 19, you had, you know, a kind of reset. So how did how did you just kind of manage these symptoms by yourself privately? Like, how did you know? Or, or... Um, I decided, I decided that I didn't really want anyone to know mm. because by that point I had been treated very badly when I had shown symptoms and people had not reacted well when I had asked questions about them. So it didn't seem like a good idea for anybody to know about this. Yeah, so I just kind of kept on the download. And yes, because I was living in foster care, I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want the foster care people to know. They actually did send me for psych evaluation. It's the one time anyone bothered to do that. And I actually, I actually purposely um, didn't let them know I was psychotic. They did a Rorschach test and I figured out how to invalidate it. Oh, um, like the ink blots? Yeah. Mm. Wow. Because I, because I, because I knew that if, if they figured out I was psychotic, um, it, things would get worse for me because the foster care system was very was very unfriendly. It was very abusive. I didn't feel safe. I, 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 I felt very much endangered in the foster care system and I did not trust them at all. Yeah, and then them finding out that you were experiencing some mental health symptoms, I think would have put you in more danger. 
yeah so it didn't it didn't feel safe for them to know I was hallucinating Mm. so I hit it and then at 19 so you hit it for a long time and then you went to college yeah I I decided I decided it wasn't really worth discussing I went at one point I did try reaching out to my mom that I was having mental health problems. I mainly focused on PTSD type symptoms at that point, but she decided not to get me into treatment because there was too long a wait list for a child psychiatrist. And she thought I would get better on my own. And, and so at that point, did you think it was symptoms of PTSD? I wasn't certain. I didn't really know anything about psychosis. I had thought maybe schizophrenia and I thought, well, maybe it's PTSD. And I was like, well, things have been weird my whole life. I had no idea. Right. And you just did self-study, like you just researched online. Yeah, I I, I truly, truly that in high school, I didn't know what was going on and I was too busy to really care. This was just my weird little world. Mm. So um, what happened was I got to college and I knew I needed mental health treatment. I knew something was wrong. So I, I got to the counseling center. I did it the first week of classes and I got in with a therapist and she's the one who gave me the diagnosis of psychosis. I had only known the word hallucinations up until then. And um, we began working on those. And then when I had the psychotic reset sophomore year, I actually um, started looking more thoroughly and I thought, and I thought I had schizoaffective disorder. Um, I, I was originally diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and it changed to schizophrenia, but I got several misdiagnoses before that. And that was quite a pain. Is that common with experiencing psychosis at, or being diagnosed with schizophrenia? I've read that sometimes it's misdiagnosed bipolar disorder initially. Psychotic depression, bipolar with psychotic features schizoaffective and schizophrenia have low interrater reliability because the symptoms are so similar. Mm. So when you talk about your, you know, psychosis reset, uh, what did that look like? And has that, in your opinion, kind of permanently changed? Like, is that a permanent change you feel? I do think it's a permanent change. Um, What happened is I had therapy that day. So I was at the counseling center and my therapist had been trying to get me to try psychiatric meds for a while because uh-huh. the voices had been getting worse. And I, I finally agreed that day because I'd had a scary voice episode the night before. And then I started feeling very dissociative um, after that. And I barely made it to my statistics class. And then I couldn't pay attention to statistics. And I had an out-of-body experience um, of seeing myself strangled in the night. And I had, um, I'd been studying for an organic, I was a biology major at the time. I'd been studying for an organic chemistry exam for a week and nothing was sticking. It was just what in one year out the other. And I was terribly panicked. So the vision made me very disturbed because I needed to go to the library. I needed to go to the science library and study for my organic chemistry test. Um, because, or else I would fail. But if I went to the organic camp, uh, to the science library, I would die. But if I didn't go to the library, I would fail. Mm. So what a conundrum. Right. Um, <laughs> um, not really thinking clearly then. Um, 
So I, I called a friend and we met and I started talking to her in very panic confused phrases and I took her back to my dorm room and I just started having a breakdown basically I started talking in monosyllabic phrases and laughing laughing uncontrollably I took she handed me a notebook to try and communicate and I started scribbling about shadow people and people watching me and monsters and I started like playing with a barrel as a child and my um, rocking back and forth. Um, my friend called the campus police and they took us to the local ER and I continued rocking back and forth and only speaking in monosyllabic phrases and um, just generally being very confused. Uh, my color hallucinations bright and bold and vivid and everything was just confused in my mind. It was, it was like something had, it was kind of, like I said, something had snapped, something had ripped open. Wow. It was like, it was like something had opened up inside kind of oh. that needed to be reorganized. And eventually I gained my speech back for a little bit. And I was able to talk to the evaluators, but then I lost it again for several days um, and could only speak in monosyllabic phrases for a few days. Um, and my parents came down from Northern Virginia and they both had pneumonia. Um, my mother had pneumonia in one lung and my father had pneumonia in both long, lungs. And his doctors tried admitting him to the hospital um, at my school, but he didn't wanna be in the hospital. He's like, I'm just staying in the hotel room. So that it was my parents with pneumonia, my dad on the brink of death with pneumonia, driving several hours to my university in, at night in the rain and me barely coherent. Do you remember what was that kind of an out-of-body experience too? Were you, while you were in the ER, did you know what was happening or not really? Truthfully, I don't remember it. Mm. I don't remember most of it. I remember the waiting room. I remember talking with the, um, um, evaluation people and seeing my parents, but I don't remember anything in between that. So then were you hospitalized? I was not hospitalized. Um, since I wasn't suicidal or homicidal, they decided to just let me go if my parents were suffering from pneumonia. Wow. So no meds, no, 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 no nothing. meds. I had an appointment with the um, school psychiatry um, about a week from then. So they're like, just see the psychiatry people in a week. How long were you at that at the ER for? Eight hours, about that. Sometimes and then they were like, okay, see you hours. later. Yeah. Wow. So after that, you're, you went and saw the psychiatrist. Like, how, what is it after that reset? What has it been like? Well, after that, I went and saw a psychiatric nurse practitioner at um, the college and she prescribed me Adelify, which mm. didn't work. That's a common um, first, is that a first generation medication for? It's a second generation line. It's a common first medication. It's, it's a serotonin agonist, so it doesn't have as many side effects. I mm. think that's why they choose it. Got it. Um, but it didn't work. So I had another major psychiatric episode in January. Um, eventually I was hospitalized, um, in February of 2017 
And I ended up going on Geodon and then I ended up going on lithium. And it was a really heavy battle for stability. The medications helped a little bit, but I ended up going into bulimia. I had suffered from eating disorders um, cyclically and in varying intensity since the age of about um, 11, yeah, about 11. Mm. Um, it's, it's a bit hard to remember the dates exactly. Yeah. Um, um, but I went, I went to a, a, a heavy bulimic phase and they, they were really giving up on me. Like my therapist in Northern Virginia who kicked me out, she, she basically told me you're going to end up in an institution or die, but. Because yeah. she just didn't know how to handle it. Yeah, because, you know, I, I had bulimia, I had the severe schizophrenia, I was suicidal, I had the dissociative identity issues, and no one would take me. The medication seemed ineffective. The medication didn't work until I got the right therapist. Mm. And the therapist was able, my, my therapist, Miss B, God bless her. God bless Miss B. Um, she, she came to my graduation. Um, she's brilliant. Um, what was about why was why is Miss B so great? What did she do that helped in tandem? It sounds like with the medic being on the right medication. Miss B, um, well, she she has a master's of science in psychotherapy, and she's an art therapist as well, and she's currently a PhD student. Um, she keeps up on the scientific literature. She's very aware of the biology of the brain and the biochemistry. Mm. And also of that of the medications. In terms of the biology of the brain, you feel like that's a crucial component in understanding the nature of schizophrenia? I do believe major mental illnesses, all major mental illnesses are brain disease. There is no difference between a psychiatric illness and, and a neurological illness in terms of being a brain disease. This mm. is a disease of the brain. And you need to understand it as a disease of the brain, just because you can treat it with therapy. You can treat it with therapy because behavior shapes the brain. Mm. And you need to understand that. And, or, and talking shapes the brain. That's how the brain can be molded. It's designed to be molded by the environment. And as long as we are on this earth, our brain is how we interact with the environment. So it just, she, she understands the, neuro, the neuroscience. And she also is very, she integrates different forms of therapy. She heavily uses CBTP, CBT for psychosis, but she also used the art therapy, which is heavily, which is perfect for my dissociative identities because it allowed us to communicate and allowed me to process trauma and understand trauma that was held in the altars and work through it in a nonverbal fashion because trauma memories often stored nonverbally. So art therapy was perfect for that. Um, I would suggest anyone with DID who is looking to integrate, just check out our therapist and see if there's one that fits for you. But um, for the psychosis, she did mixed rehabilitative therapies with supportive therapies and social skills therapies and working on goal setting and strength-based therapies. Strength-based and client-centered is also very helpful. Oh. As a schizophrenic people, you often have really hurt self-esteem. So, in, so integrating a strengths-based approach, I think is highly, is very necessary. Mm, yeah. Yeah. When you, I want to talk about what you were mentioning before um, DID, but, but first when you say that 
you know, CBTP, like for psychosis, what exactly is psychosis and the definition that we're working with? Is it, is that sort of a state that you feel that is consistent or that you ebb and flow in and out of, or, or, or what is psychosis? Psychosis is a broad category that describes a huge range of symptoms and a huge range of disorders. When psychosis, we're talking about generally hallucinations, delusions, the various forms of disorganizations, catatonia, um, disorganized speech, disorganized thought. Um, it can also include negative symptoms like allergia, anhedonia, volition, and cognitive symptoms like I lost the ability to read and had to re- relearn how to read. Oh. Um, um, it's, it's a wide range. It, it, it is a symptom category. It, um, sometimes people are given general psychosis labels in, when they're in between diagnoses, but oh, it, I see. You, you can have, you can have psychosis in panic attacks. Sometimes people hallucinate or have delusions when they're in panic attacks. You can have chronic psychosis that waxes and wanes in severity and schizophrenia and schizoaffective. You can have very specific forms of psychosis in mania, in, in mania, in bipolar disorder. You can have psychosis tr- triggered by damage to the brain in epilepsy. It, it's, it's very broad. And then, you have, and then you have neurodevelopmental psychosis in the schizophrenia disorders. And then you can have stress induced in like brief psychotic disorder. Mm. It's, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. Yeah. So you could basically have psychosis in any, I mean, in any other, in addition to any other mental health condition with like, oh, within any condition. Oh, you can have it in, it's it's a narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, major Mm. depression, OCD, even you have it in almost anything. Got it. Got it. And then that's an umbrella for in for additional symptoms the term psychosis is used yes so i i thanks for explaining that so so after it sounds like you kind of were experimenting with different medications that were not necessarily helping your symptoms that much and then did you have to take off time from from school i imagine that the school was not that supportive or tell me a little bit about that. In the fall semester of 2017, I attempted taking classes, but I have only withdrawals. Um, mm. I, I was basically forced out of a class because the professor didn't like my symptoms. And I had to drop a couple classes because I was just too sick. And I really tried, I really tried getting through um, I really tried working in the research lab I was working in. I really tried dedicating myself to that. And I, I was supposed to earn credit for that. And I almost finished my genetics class. I just had to finish up a couple of exams. The problem was I got, a, I had additional problems. I got a concussion at the end of the semester. Mm. And, but then at the beginning of the next semester, I was just so sick. Um, the reading problems were props problem I was developing eating the eating disorder issues I and I withdrew from the university um there was there's a rule about withdrawing within three weeks and there's lesser penalties um so I withdrew then and then my um withdraws my incompletes from the previous semester had to turn into withdraw passes so I have two I have two semesters on my transcript of all withdraws I still got into graduate school um yeah 
And then I, then I took the next school year off and returned in fall of 2019 after taking one summer class. So just to finish that. Got it. Got it. So with the bulimia symptoms, do you feel that that was something like a tool that was utilized to manage other symptoms? My eating disorder symptoms were a trauma response. It was a, it was a, it was an attempt to control my body because I had felt so, I felt so out of control of my body from you know, all, all the medical issues I had had yeah. from her, from harassment, from my mother's instability and, and emotional mistreatment from other things in my life. I think it was an attempt to regain control in my life, um, sort of uh, a, a, an improper sublimation and attack, attacking my trauma um, got rid of the eating disorder symptoms, just it, all desire, all of it within just a couple of months. So I, I think it was just a form of trauma sublimation. Mm. So how are your symptoms now? How, how, you know, so you're preparing for graduate school. Um, how, how has that been? I mean, I know you don't like the word recovery, you know, so how has that process after the initial reset, um, what has, what does stability look like, I guess? Um, it, it's, it can still be challenging at times. I have pretty much constant visual hallucinations of colors and lights. They wax and wane in severity. When I am stressed, I do tend to get more solid hallucinations and sometimes voices. So those have been less frequent lately. It, it, it does depend. My disorganization has overall been getting better with time, but I do get disorganized when I'm under a lot of stress. Um, do you mean within but, your thoughts or like physically disorganized as in like from time and place or like papers are everywhere? Both. Okay, got it. Um, and some, sometimes self-care can be a challenge that's largely because of the medic i i used to i had this dystonia for a while um paralysis of the facial muscle muscles from antipsychotics and the medication i take for that makes me very dizzy even even on the lowest dose mm. so that that can interfere with my self-care because it, it has trouble putting on lotion shaving um taking a shower that sort of thing um but Overall, I'm vastly improved. My ability to handle academics is vastly improved. My ability to attend class. I feel, I feel very good going into graduate school. I'm going to need my disability accommodations, but I think it's going to, I think overall, the, the more time goes on, the easier it gets. How was it, or do you feel that you're on the correct or at least a helpful medication regime? I tried tapering off my lithium last summer and because I hadn't had bipolar symptoms in over, well over a year. Mm. And um, I couldn't do it. It wasn't withdrawal. It was the lithium had started acting as an antipsychotic. Mm. And um, I was hallucinating terribly. I had bugs, bugs, bugs all over my skin, bugs crawling, eating me, trying to kill me. And I couldn't handle it. So I had to go back on the lithium. Mm. So I must take lithium now. And 
my anti actual antipsychotic. Um, I do think it's helpful. I think it helps me keep focused. I think it sort of keeps the lid on things, but it it is not my first line of defense. My first line of defense is the therapy. Mm. Why? Because the therapy, the therapy taught me how to approach my hallucinations. And as I changed my approach towards my hallucinations, as I was able to take a third perspective, a third person look at them, as I was able to analyze them, find meaning in them, learn how to talk to them, they dampened down. They they lowered they lowered in intensity. Some of them went away. And as I as, as I keep that approach towards looking at my hallucinations, I'm able to I'm able to live with them and not be stressed out by them and they don't interfere in my life so i've been able to reduce my medication loads greatly because i just don't need them as much i still take them and like i said they keep the lid on it but mostly my therapy my therapy is what helps me is there meaning in your hallucinations is like like are they random or is there a deeper meaning to them there has been meaning at time nine 99 of the time they are random but occasionally like during a major life event there will mm. be something symbolic more so when i was still processing everything i had issues but i had things but nowadays they're pretty much random mm. do you feel that you were born with schizophrenia i do May maybe not precisely born completely born a fit I, I i mark age seven is the end of my prodrome wait your your end of what my prodrome schizophrenia has a prodromal phase what does that mean the the, the schizophrenia has a prodromal the prodromal phase of schizophrenia is when you're symptomatic but not fully into the disorder yet mm. so i mark between like seven and ten is the end of my prodromal phase Mm. So I was sort of born into the prodrome. I see. I see. And then after the prodrome, you're considered to have, have the disorder. Okay. Yeah. I see. So sometime between the age of seven and 10, I think is when I flipped. I, I, the, my memory is quite blurred for that era. So I can't give a certain date. So has therapy helped you to kind of dance with the hallucinations in a way so that they don't cause as much stress because I imagine it's pretty distressing initially when you have the awareness of like oh I'm seeing and hearing things that other people are not and then but is is that kind of the shift that you've been working on within the therapy of like okay how do I live with these hallucinations and not make them and not let them stress me out to the point where it makes it worse or yes that is definitely one thing that I've been working on and it's something I've been working on training myself my whole life to some extent mm. because I, I had to. I, I started doing it with the voices when I was in high school because I mean, it's like I, I, have, I, have, to, I have to figure out how to block these. I'm not going to be able to get through it if I'm arguing with the voices in my head all the time. Mm. So I started working on ways to do that on my own in high school, but having a licensed therapist guide you and talk you through it calmly is much more helpful. <laughs> yeah yeah because is and that's the guidance of that you know it's okay to talk to to the voices but you have to kind of 
there's a time and place perhaps yeah and, the, and there's a and there's there's a way so it's similar to ocd you don't mm. argue against it you acknowledge it and move on right right got it got it and and i imagine that when if there has been a time where you've been publicly you know reacting to the hallucinations uh that then people take note or notice and then make you feel shame about it which makes it worse yeah 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 especially especially in high school when I would react to my hallucinations people would very would freak out and be like eh you're crazy Mm. and it was it was very it's very it was very hard when I got to college, people were more accepting of Rose the Oddball, but it's I still found myself very excluded in social situations. And the, 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 the day I sort of found my voice to speak up publicly about my psychosis was, um, it was in January of 2017, and it was at my old church group. Um, I would eventually leave this church group because the people in it would kind of change and I would eventually become very alienated. But when these people were there, this group of people were there, I decided to come clean, to come open about my, what was diagnosed with psychotic depression at the time, uh, about my needs in terms of if I had an episode, because I was having episodes all the time because the Adelphi didn't work. And I spoke to the vestry at my um, campus ministry and I was open about my diagnosis and what it was like and what my needs were. And it was terrifying, but it was exhilarating. Mm. And I realized that I hadn't felt freedom like that in a very, very long time. And that little taste of freedom kind of got a ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned, I, I really liked, um, a post that you did on your page that talked about how you're openly psychotic and you're, you know, to live as you do is a statement. Tell me a little bit more about, about that and what you mean by that. You know, people, people don't expect there to be schizophrenic people at a brand name university. Right. And I remember I, I spoke to my, men, my mentor, Dr. Gibson, um, the, the one I'm publishing my paper with. Um, we, 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 we did get actually finally get a publisher for an abridged version of it, which we're very happy about. Oh, um, I want to talk yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah. 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 It, the, the conference we presented at has a publication and they wanted to, they, they decided to publish an abridged version of our paper. Um, but um, she, she, when, I, when I spoke to her at, in office hours and we got to know her, she confided in me, you know, Rose, I've, I've, I've treated students with DID, I've spoken to students, students with depression and anxiety, and I've spoken to students about their friends and partners with psychosis and schizophrenia, but I've never actually expected to see a student with schizophrenia in my classroom, mm. and I need to change that perspective. And, she, she, I, and I've had other professors make, make similar statements. Um, I've had professors tell me I've changed their perspectives and that my perspectives are new. And a lot of the professors are very open to what I have to say and my viewpoint. Some of them don't want to hear it as much, but um, there there were many professors that were very welcoming to my new ideas and appreciated my contributions. And so 
there, there is room in academia for these new ideas. There is, mm -hmm. there is resistance, but there are people that are open to these new ideas and to changing how we view psychotic disorders. And is the assumption that you feel, or, or is it that, oh, someone with a, um, a psychotic disorder would, would never be able to quote unquote do this or handle academia? That's why we don't, like, is that the expectation that you've felt and, and from people? Yes, it is. And it, it is supported by the literature. Mm. Um, in, 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 in the research for, for our article, it, it's a review article, um, Dr. Gibson and I found that um, people with severe mental illness and, and even more accepted conditions like ADHD, they rarely graduate college. In the Finnish 1966 cohort study, no one with early onset schizophrenia had completed a tertiary degree uh, at, at the bachelor's, at the bachelor's level, level, let alone at the master's or doctorate. And very few people with depression or other disorders did, but at least some of them did, but still very few. And in a study out of um, the, the universe, some universities in New York City, if you had students with ADHD, autism, and, or mental illness were significantly less likely to graduate or still be enrolled in a several semesters. So, you know, it's the system is stacked against us, but I don't think it has to be. And I think I think if we can just explain the, the different perspective and how and how you can accommodate, and I don't think our requests are that unreasonable, mm. and especially since we've had COVID and we saw how things can be changed. I mean, I, I think we have reasonable arguments. I think we have meritorious arguments. Yeah. So, and your point being that in terms of accessibility with COVID, we've seen how universities and higher higher ed can can make these changes the ones that they've claimed that they were unable to for years prior yeah mm. and I, I i know academia doesn't like making changes very much but i don't think the changes they'd have to make to make these universities more accommodating are that big for the most mm. part yeah, I do think some of them would require require a bit more effort, such as expanding mental health programming, but certain things like avoiding certain like providing trigger warnings, or avert or avoiding certain flat like flashing lights, making fragrance bands, that sort of things, wouldn't be that hard. The fragrance and the lights, because that could be potentially triggering to someone that that. Um, can go into psychosis because that could basically start that process or contribute to that process. Flashing lights um, can trigger um, some, they can trigger sensory issues or dissociation issues, mm. and fragrance fragrance can also trigger sensory and dissociation issues. Pe people don't people that just think of allergies if they think of them at all, but it can also trigger um, sens sensory problems because the smell can be overwhelming. Um, if the person has some sort of allergy, the allergy can interact with the sensory issue and cause an overload. Mm. That's something that's happened to me personally. So. And when you say that, you know, some people are open to the different perspective, what is the different perspective that you're offering is just that people that have a psychotic disorder are, are 
are are able to do these things and this is like is that the different perspective that some people are just not willing to understand or 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 don't understand particularly when it comes to academia or or other you know areas of work or life yeah well that psychotic people can do it but also that we need to make some changes to make mm. it more appropriate yeah and also in, including in also in within the psychology department including psychosis in the curriculum because within the psycho psych, within a psychology curriculum psychosis is almost completely absent except to talk about like the most severe cases or inpatient things or forensic psychology so mm. talking about so talking about psychosis talking about issues that affect us talking about ethical issues within within the profession like forced hospitalization forced medication not ignoring them talking about things like psychiatric survivors so mm. it just including these sort of voices because the only voices that get included in terms of mental patients within the um, psychology curriculum are like people with anxiety and depression maybe adhd yeah i i i completely agree uh i and i also liked a, another post that i saw about you talking about mental health awareness month which is this month in may and and how you said in the post you know that that even during a month like mental health awareness month that anxiety and depression and some trauma info is kind of where most discussion is and that schizophrenia psychosis personality disorders disassociation continue to be absent from the conversation and that there kind of needs to be an attitude change and is that because these disorders are typically the most stigmatized and like misunderstood and 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 you know I had some um I had someone else come on the show that also had a diagnosis of uh, schizophrenia and, and she was saying how it's like, you know, it's considered the worst of the worst of mental conditions. Yeah. And also you see how psychosis is continually stigmatized by people who claim to be social justice advocates. You know, you see people call racists deluded. They call, they call shooters psychotic. Mm. They call, you see, you see liberals call, Republic, you see liberals call Republican psycho and Republicans call liberals schizophrenic, mm. you know, we're the people everybody, everybody steps on mm. and to, 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 be, to be schizophrenic is to be everybody's um, living boy, basically, no yeah. one wants to be associated with us and, you know, it's just we're, 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 we're the ugly cause. Um, mm. Yeah. And does that start with what you were saying, you know, including um, psychosis, schizophrenia, and these types of mental conditions within the psychology curriculum and, and have, a, have a real conversation surrounding them and not just discuss, you know, these the worst of the worst cases, which actually further creates this perception of like, oh, people with uh, people with schizophrenia always need to be hospitalized forever and always. Like, do you think that's where it starts, or or, or how does it start? Yes, oh, always, always talking about schizophrenia in the in in the in the case of forensic psychology mm. isn't acceptable. If you right. only talk about schizophrenia. When you talk about forensic psychology, you're creating a, a mental map 
of people, that schizophrenic people are violent. And the only place that we show up is in violent crime. You need to also talk about schizophrenics when you're doing the Rorschach and the MMPI and other stuff. You need to talk about schizophrenics when you're talking about psychotherapy. Yeah, and another example I was thinking of was in clinical psychology. When they were talking about um, psychotherapy, different psychotherapy methods, Mm -hmm. the only time schizophrenia came up in the psychotherapy methods was to talk about token economies, which are used in inpatient hospital settings in in severe inpatient hospital settings. And it's when you get little token rewards to exchange for things, exchange for doing tasks like making your bed. And that's the only time they talked about therapies for schizophrenia. And all the other therapies they talked about were basically for anxiety or depressed for for depressive disorders, mm. except for I think exposure and response prevention. And it's just like, there's so many things you could have put and that's what you did. Right. There's so much more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think it creates this cycle of people thinking that schizophrenia is, is one thing. And then it contributes to that idea of like, okay, everyone with schizophrenia lives in hospitals forever. They, you know, and, and it's just not true. It's just not true at all. And and there's so much more that as clinicians and therapists and just everybody should know, because I mean, schizophrenia is also a spectrum. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. It's in the DSM. Schizophrenia spectrum. Um, um, there's a schizophrenia spectrum of schizophrenia, schizoaffective and schizophreniform. Yeah. But there's also um, within those disorders quite a bit of variation. Yeah. Um, they, they used to have the subtypes. They don't use those anymore. But um, you, you can see why they came up with subtypes because there is quite a variety in how people present. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about DID for a little bit. So DID dissociative identity disorder please you know tell us what that is uh what has your experience been with did i feel like it is one of the most misunderstood diagnoses perhaps i mean along with almost everything that we've been discussing but but it's also one of those uh i think sensationalized in a way um in addition to just being so misunderstood. So can you tell us what it is? Yeah, DID, dissociative identity disorder, that is when a person, a person's identity does not fully form in childhood and it gets sort and you get sort of these compartmentalizations. It's not different identities, they're part of the same person. They're just dissociated with trauma attached to them. Um, I'm not explaining this the best. I'm sorry. No, Um, no, no, no. You did. You did. Uh, So is it, is it always, is the idea therapeutically, I guess, that DID stems from, from trauma, severe trauma? Uh, Generally, that's the idea. It's not a diagnostic requirement for there to be an identifiable trauma. And there is no diagnostic. And Online spaces, you'll see people touting that like you have to have trauma by the age of nine. That is not true clinically. There is no requirement for that. 
Mm. Um, There's like one, I've seen like one paper saying something about the age of nine, but I I tried doing a literature search to find that. I couldn't find that paper. Someone had to give it to me. I couldn't find anything talking about an age requirement. Um, So uh, no clinician I've talked to knows anything about an age requirement for trauma. So I don't really know where the people getting this. This doesn't even seem to be a major debate. So I don't know why people are so obsessed with this requirement. Maybe, maybe it's just a gatekeep, but generally it's assumed there's some sort of trauma and this happens, but you don't have to have an identifiable trauma. I assume this is because of the way trauma memories work because they're not always stored verbally or in a way that's easy to recall and human memory is notoriously fallible. Mm. So, so I'm assuming that the writers, the DSM left it open to um, allow for the variability of cases that might pop up. So that way someone wouldn't be excluded just because of some sort of memory issue. Are you diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder? I was, I am recovered. Um, Which is something that can happen with trauma therapy. Yes. Some people in the DID community do not like the term recovered because they think it makes DID sound like a bad thing. For me, it was. So I'm going to use the term recovered in this sense. Um, For me, DID involved major amnesia. I had an episode of dissociative amnesia that lasted about 16 hours. Um, I had my alters um, and the episodes lasted they, I would lose hours every day to dissociation, sitting or standing, staring at the wall, lost in dissociative trances. I had a self-harming altar, a, suicidal, a self-harming suicidal altar. I could not function with my DID. I was miserable. Um, I, I, did, I did not dislike my alters, but I was a little bit scared to leave them because they felt like part of me. But, get, get, but getting to know them and revealing the trauma and memories and emotion they felt and releasing it and bringing it into me allowed me to fully heal and move forward and become the person I am. The full integration um, only took a few months and less than less than a year. And over time, I've discovered more and more little pockets within me that, that, uh, that have that sort of that I've repressed or that I've ignored. And, I, and now that I know the process, I'm like, okay, part of self, little, little bit, come out, I'll feel you, I'll, I'll let you in. And it's just, it's been a very healing thing. And I've gotten to know myself and my intuition and my body. And I think it's been a very beautiful process. I, I appreciate integration. Many people don't like it. I, I personally believe in patient autonomy. So if people don't want to integrate as, as long as as long as they are safe, I well actually well as long as they're safe, that is their choice. If if, if they if they have trouble controlling an altar, that's that's a difficult question because I don't I don't want to tell somebody what to do with their body. Mm. So some people want to integrate, but that's not necessarily the goal for every person with yeah. DID. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I thought the goal was always integration, actually. Or, no, or, not, not, not everyone. That, that's the goal they tell therapists. But not, right. everyone wants, not, not everyone wants to integrate. And I believe in patient autonomy. So it, it's a very difficult problem when you have a self-harming altar. And that's where I'm thinking as a clinician, what do you do? 
but I, I over overall I believe in bodily autonomy so I don't I really don't think you should force somebody to integrate if they don't want to yeah yeah and so for you integration means that you do not disassociate and go into a full altar if I'm using the 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 correct terminology yeah. I still have dissociation but that that disassociation is part of the mechanism of how psychosis works so there is dissociation and schizophrenia um so I have dissociation from my schizophrenia but mm. I don't have it it's part of a dissociative disorder was that difficult to for your for yourself and the people that you worked with to decipher between DID and your schizophrenia symptoms because some of them overlap? Um, the voices from my alters were very distinct to me. Mm. Um, what happened is I sort of had a dissociative break. Um, my mother and I were at a restaurant in Northern Virginia and I looked at her and said, who are you? And she had to reintroduce herself and I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. I didn't, I didn't know what my name was. And I, I, I didn't recognize the car. My mother took me home. I didn't recognize the American flag. I didn't recognize my house. I knew my way around the house, but I didn't recognize anything in it. I didn't recognize it as being mine. I didn't recognize my father. Um, I woke up and the next morning I was claiming to be five years old. Um, and my, I, I was seeing my psychologist and we we're go, and going to see the psychiatrist at the time. And the, the psychologist thought I had the, the psychologist that I go sniff DID, but she would later get timid and not understand and revoke that diagnosis. And then I would get diagnosed with it again. Um, it's a very weird story. And, and they, they kind of confused about what to do. And then more alters would pop up from there. When the alters would pop up at that point, to me, they would appear in a mental world. We had a forest and a clearing and a castle up and up in the mountain, kind of like that fairy tale castle in Germany. Mm. And um, the, the altar, the, all, the four alters, the four of them would appear as figures with their own distinct faces and bodies and fashion um, in, in that world. And they had their own voices and they were embodied, they're physical. I could interact with them, I could touch them. When I, when I interacted and touched them, I had emotions, I had connections. It was as real as talking to you. And the voices, the voices, the internal voices sounded like they were coming up from a left or right corner. Mm. Um, and the external voices are obviously external. And the, the, they were raspier, they were wispier. And they, they, did, they didn't have the, the, solid, the solid nature of an altar. Wow. Wow. And, and with the thinking of DID, is that something that is viewed as to develop over time? DID is an acquired disorder. Is an acquired um, disorder. Yeah. Yes. What, once the personality compartmentalizes, it's more prone to compartmentalize further. Mm, so so you start off with two and then you go further so how can therapists providers what are we missing and how are we harming clients that we see or just in general um living with psychosis schizophrenia dissociative identity disorder um, and some of maybe other stigmatized mental health conditions, like, like how do therapists continuously harm these clients and what can we do to do better? 
The biggest thing is a lack of education. There is not enough education in severe and rarer mental disorders. Mm. I mean, these aren't even particularly rare. Right. But the, the, just the, there, the, 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 there's not enough focus of education on them. Not enough therapists do internships, I think, where they have the chance to learn strongly about them. Or if they do, they do them in a hospital setting, which is usually the only place you can do an internship in them. Right. And they sort of solely see us as patients in a hospital setting. Mm. They don't take that information and translate it to how they can work at an outpatient. And they don't do continuing education in psychosis issues. They don't seek out training or readings in psychosis. So when a psychotic patient walks in the door, they go, sorry, I can't help you. Mm. And then that happens a hundred times. Right. So psychosis, psychoses are very treatable with behavioral therapy and, and social skills training and things like that. But we are not given it because no one knows how to do it. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you, and if you do get a therapist who's willing to try, often they have many prejudices about psychoses. They're scared. They don't understand the basic mechanisms of psychoses. They don't understand the biology. They don't understand sort of they don't understand the greater neurology and psychology so i think you get getting yourself familiar with the literature you know if, if you have access to databases through your professional organizations i don't know what that is if any journals you do subscribe to pubmed you know yeah yeah you're absolutely right i mean it's these you know quote-unquote rare disorders which are not all that rare uh are not discussed nearly as much. I mean, I went to social work graduate school and, and, and there was no classes. I mean, there, you know, there, there was no, it was more about ethics and, and, but you're not, you're not going into the depth that is needed to discuss how to help, um, or how to, or really even how to view certain mental conditions without the stigmatized lens and without like, you know, the way that we're taught, it looks like when in reality, many people have don't think they've ever interacted with someone with any of these conditions, you know? Yeah. What are some of your resources aside from, um, please like share your, your work that you do and where we can find your work, but what are some other resources too of that are really helpful for people to begin to learn more? If you have any, um, um, my page is psychosis. Um, Sensitivity. It's positivity with an S after the P. It was supposed to be a play on words. Um, it ended up failing terribly and just confusing everyone. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's that on Instagram and podcasts on most major podcasting platforms. Mm -hmm. um, on my Instagram, I have linked to the long form of the paper I wrote um, through the link in my bio. Um, it will. The short form will be coming out in the Southeastern Teaching of psychology conferences publication shortly um let's see good good resources um i think um a good a, a couple good books to read yes are um the center cannot hold by ellen sachs um the collected schizophrenia by esme wejong wang um if you're if you have a loved one with psychosis who has having trouble accepting help I'm not sick. I don't need help. By Xavier Amador, is a good one. Mm. Um, American Psychosis by um, 
E. Fulatori is about the history of deinstitutionalization in the United States. That one's an interesting read. Um, just he, but he, he just keep in mind his bias. He's pro, he's pro institutions. So oh okay, um, the American but, but, psychosis but, author. Yeah, yeah, but it is an interesting take on how, on how the system failed to su support the the patients as they as they left and created the homelessness problem. Uh, so I, I, I think it's worth the read. Mm, got it. Got it. Um, e. Fulatori also has a book called Surviving Schizophrenia Family Manual, which might be helpful for families of people newly diagnosed. Have you read that? I just bought that book, actually. Yes, it was, it was actually the first book I read on schizophrenia. Oh, and you enjoyed it? Yeah, it, 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 it left me wanting more because there's a lot missing from it. Oh, okay. I see. I see. It, it's, um, a, it's a very basic introduction. Got it. Got it. I and my, and my last question, you know, aside from anything else you want to share, but but what is um, what are your goal, goals for yourself, your practice, your work, graduate school, everything? What are your what are your personal changes that you would like to see with how we think and talk about psychosis and, and schizophrenia, and just in general for yourself? Um, I, I'm well. I'm excited for graduate school. Um, I personally, I really, my goal is to do a lot of education. I think a lot of what changes we need to make can be done through education. Mm. I do think, I do think uh, psychosis advocates will eventually have to work through the courts to get some changes, but I feel, I think the courts and the legislature should be limited in their use. I think we can, I think we can win our cause to the merits of our arguments mm. more. And I think that's better than force than strong, than strong arming people through the courts. I think that by educating clinicians about the perspective of psychotic people and what works from our perspective, it will be much more helpful than just changing regulations. Um, as a clinician, I want to work on continuing education one thing that's really important to me is misdiagnosis and different and differential diagnosis rates in um, racial categories and immigrant categories mm. because racial minorities and recent immigrants are diagnosed with schizophrenia at much higher rates than native-born uh, Euro-Americans. Mm. And, and over-diagnosis and over-prescription of um, antipsychotics is a big problem. And educating about the diagnosis and presentation is very important there. And educating about the, how psychotic people think and behave and what is normal, what is not, that sort of thing, to change how they are approached when they are in hospitals and in the emergency rooms, I think is important to me. Um, I would like to see changes in regulations around the use of restraints and forced medications. Um, my ideal would be not to have them, but I'm not certain we will see that in our lifetimes. So um, I, th I think we might, and my, my father is a lawyer, so I know gradual change is probably how it's going to go. But um, I, I education is my big thing. I, I want to work with psychosis, psychotic clients exclusively and continue working with students with psychosis to stay in touch. 
I want to work with fellow clinicians to understand what they need when working with psychotic clients mm. and make resources for them. I want to, I want to publish. I want to, I want to, I want to make connections with people at universities and work with research and hopefully and with students of psychosis, do some sort of research maybe, or do research on my own with my clients. And I want to, I want, yeah, basically just edu educating professionals, helping with research and work and continuing to work with students with psychosis and my clients yeah. and publishing and publishing resources for clinicians and academics. Yeah, your, your work is, um, first, thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. And, and your page is incredible. I've, I've learned so much in the, in the, I think I started following you sometime within the last six months and I've, I, I, I don't even know how I found your page, but it's, it's so, it's amazing. And, um, I thank you so much for coming on and just being so open and honest and sharing, you know, so much. Um, I've learned so much. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, Rose and I actually decided that she will be coming back on the podcast because there's so much more to talk about. And, and this was just the beginning. And uh, please follow Rose on Instagram. Her page is incredible. I've learned so much. Psychosis Positivity, P-S-O-S-I-T-I-V-I-T-Y. My page on Instagram is Psych and the City BK. If you want to share your story or want some Thing, want to talk about something on the podcast, please email me psychandthecitybk at gmail.com. Uh, and all of the resources that Rose mentioned will be listed in the show notes. And thanks.